This evening, I wish to um, speak about the person of Jesus. Some years ago, in um, 1977, on my first visit to Barry, Massachusetts, there was a three-month retreat there, and Jack Jack Cornfield invited me to come for the last three weeks of that retreat. And a number of people on that retreat who were both directly concerned with uh, Christianity and also uh, with, the, with the practice. And I was asked to give a talk on this, on, on Jesus. And, uh, and then just recently I was speaking with some friends and they... Um, asked me, made a number of requests, if I would um, give a talk on this person again. So it's, it's very much in response to these requests. <coughs> and perhaps coming from our background, and which for a number of people in a Western uh, tradition, of, and of course of Judeo-Christian, then the person of Jesus is one who is, for a number of people in our society, a, a major, a central figure, shall we say. To give consideration and care and attention to Jesus is rather necessary and important to see him firstly as a man, a man of the heart, and also as a person who was giving both a teaching and a practice about life, and who was quite clearly from the scriptures pointing a very direct way. And it's perhaps through familiarity of reading the scripture Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the Gospels, and through one's own practice that we may be able to come to a deeper appreciation of what he was pointing out and pointing towards. So we may say that in the language of, of Jesus there is a, a joint emphasis, and this joint emphasis keeps appearing and reappearing throughout many of the uh, talks and uh, dialogues and questions that he answered. And the joint emphasis seems to be very much centered, firstly on the way, and secondly on the kingdom of God. And it's through the practice, one's own practice, and through, the, through reflection and awareness and meditative observation, that there is an opportunity for us, possibly, to draw upon the wealth and richness of his insights and his understanding in, of life. An extraordinary understanding, I would say, in which he wasn't reluctant at all, given the social reality that he was living in, of bringing or using and employing paradoxes things which to the ordinary conventional mind simply cannot 
I emphasize that, cannot be understood. And so one has there, as it were, an ongoing, ongoing revelation by him of what he saw, and I'll give some examples from the, the, the stories, um, mainly using the form of parables, and then sometimes, as he would do with his close friends, give further explanation of what he meant, and taking it a step further too in his uh, liberating insights to coming to a, a comprehension and understanding of what is meant by the kingdom of God. And in that looking at Jesus and the mode of Jesus, it would be far too a restrictive kind of mode to limit his, perce his perceptions to one of simply of a religious leader. And there is certainly sufficient evidence and indication there with him that he's speaking much more from a very human standpoint about the realities of life. And so he would often refer to himself as the son of man, in our language today, the son of humankind, meaning in no way attempting to distinguish himself in an isolated mode. And one sees there too, throughout his relationships to life, there was a certain kind of, one might say, anti-authoritarian streak within him. And it was certainly noticed in his vehement protests about religiosity, about hierarchical structure, about the authority of the religious and political leaders of the time. So here one has a, a sense to get a feeling for Jesus. It's coming from a person who lived and walked on the earth and, and who participated in the ordinary, everyday life of the people that he was communicating with. And I think that's a very essential foundation and basis for us to work from, both in our own life and <coughs> practice, as, <coughs> as well as in an understanding of his teachings. And one sees, too, that not only was there a critical awareness of authority and religiosity, but an, an unusual care and sensitivity towards life itself. And the frequency of parables there, stories, everyday stories about people's lives, and using the stories to indicate and turn the mind and heart towards something deeper. And the, the frequency of reference too, to creatures, to the foxes, and to the birds, and to the sheep and the goats. Again, a further expression of his own awareness and sensitivity about our relationship to creatures. So, so one feels that within the context of this unusual man of the heart, a perceptiveness about life which is related to life and, and centered in life, ordinary life, everyday life. And because you and I, hopefully, as much as possible, are endeavoring, endeavoured to be centred in life, perhaps despite the changing social structure of 2,000 years, perhaps there is still much there 
which we can reflect on, look at carefully, perhaps draw inspiration from, and most important of all, come to a deeper understanding about. Some of his messages and, and, uh, and things which he was, was pointing out to people, and, and that is to the people that came to listen to him, were, as we know here with our practice too, kind of reminders, kind of hearing something which we know is a, an intelligent response to life, and needing, as it were, as it is so often for us, to be told, to be, to be, for there some to be some kind of receptivity, and so one of the phrases which he has frequently used in his communications is that what he said is for those who have ears to listen. I say this. This is, I'm using the Jerusalem Bible, which is my, uh, um, personally, my favorite um, translation. I say this to you who are listening. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who treat you badly. To the one who slaps you on one cheek, present the other. To the one who takes your cloak from you, do not refuse your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and do not ask for your property, property back from the man who robs you. Treat others as you would like them to treat you. To, you know, the, the actual demand upon one's spirituality, though in a, one might say a certain extreme of language, but somewhere or other to create an impact on what the spiritual life means and is summarized in that time-honored statement of his treat others as you would like them to treat you and if sometimes we could just take from the text just a simple sentence like that and not that it just floats across our head not that there's a kind of momentary response in listening in the moment but, as he says, take it to our heart. So that when we take something like that to our, our heart, the potency of such a line begins to register deeply enough that it has an impact. If you love those who love you, what thanks can you expect? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what thanks can you expect? For even sinners do that much. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what thanks can you expect? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Instead, love your enemies and do good, and lend without any hope of return. So there is a communication about social reality. It's a communication from him to us about our way of living with each other. Our, our 
understanding of each other, the kind of expectations in life and demands which we bring upon each other. And a direct, shall we say, encouragement for us to look at our relationships with each other. And sometimes it's rather, isn't it, in our practice, sometimes we, in our practice and in our development of our of our practice, we get a little bit too focused on trying to make it all good and clear for ourselves. And in, and, and in doing that, we perhaps are not developing sufficiently enough some of the necessary and rather vital resources which are required in, in which there is a genuine and sustained awareness in life, a sustained outpouring of friendship and, and affection for others. And therefore it's, it's, that, it's, a, it's a, a request, as it were, that in our relationship to life we're constantly going beyond ourselves and, to, and finding out what that means. And perhaps within, within that one sees too with, with Jesus and, and particularly what is usually re- referred to as the Sermon on, on the Mount, that when one goes through from one passage to another, it, it's kind of, it's not an ultimate truth, but rather it's, as it were, setting a tone. There's a kind of setting or uh, outlying certain ethical foundations for all of us. Some of those foundations which are being presented may be, may be within a particular social reality and therefore we have to employ and bring in our own awareness, our own development of our consciousness so that they meet the time of the day, the the time that you and I are living in. But somehow, despite certain changes which may be necessary from what was being said then, still, the time-honoured, Treat others as you would be treated. Don't have great demands upon others. Do good to those who hurt you, etc. And in spiritual tradition and spiritual practices, and particularly in the more contemplative traditions, both of East and West, one of the founda- one of the important emphases is, and certainly I as a, um, a monk for a, six years, well began to see and appreciate that the spiritual work has and requires the foundation for it in the first place. The foundation meaning that there is for us a certain degree of harmony and integration with life. And that means that there is a certain acceptance and acknowledgement and understanding in our relationships with life, so that can serve for us as the basis. The basis for understanding, the basis for this extraordinary reminder he keeps saying, and I'll come to, about what it means to see the kingdom of God.
And we see that so often, isn't it, in our own practice here, if we look at the variety of mind states which, are, which arise for us, and some of the pains and the confusions and difficulties which occur, how much of it is in relationship to another? How much it is in relationship to the world around? And so some of our practice, by sheer necessity for us, requires harmonizing of that making that some kind understanding and comprehending that so that we can come to this sense of equality with others, harmony with others. And when that's there and our mind is not obsessed and preoccu preoccupied with that, then our foundation is set. And then Jesus, through the mode of the, of the parable, begins to give some indication, shall we say, some, through the parable of the story, some clue, some outline of what he means by the kingdom of God. And one of the stories which he tells is when he went to uh, um, Cana to a wedding and not the one that he tells one which is recorded as actuality but I often wonder with the stories which are recorded whether there is not a truly deeper implication and it's the story of he went to this wedding and during the wedding the, uh, at the feast the wine began to run out and as, when the wine began to run out there was just the water which was left and then it is said Jesus performed a miracle. He performed the miracle of changing the water into the wine. And in that changing of the, the water into the wine, the people were amazed. People marveled. They said, how can it possibly be that this has happened, that what, what was usually the poor wine, which is usually kept to the end, is in fact tastes the best. What does he wonder what, he's refer what this is referring to? And one wonders, well, if it's just, as it were, to be taken on the face value of things. The face value is that it was a physical event. Well, so what? <laughs> but if one looks spiritually, and we look a little bit more carefully and deeply, Maybe it's something to do with our, the way we see life, the way we partake of life, our whole sense and taste of life. And perhaps too easily and too frequently through the very dulling of our mind and the dulling of our perceptions. And Jesus speaks about this perceiving, so important. The dulling of our perceptions. Maybe life, instead of being the wine that it is, as it were, is watered down to something else. And perhaps within there, there's a, something of a clue, something of an indicator of what he and others, past and present, are in life actually pointing towards, if, as he says, we have eyes to see and ears to hear. 
So sometimes in our confusion, in our misunderstanding with regard to our relationship to life and the ex- expression of it, we think, we think of the kingdom of God in a particular way. We, th- we think of it more in, in terms of some utopia, some way in life in which you and I and others and creatures in the, and environment will come to si- some kind of autonomy, some kind of relationship where there will only be peace and harmony everywhere and the world of conflict and separation and division ends. And it may be a a wish, a heartfelt wish, it it may be a, a utopian dream for us and we think, well if that in this world which we live in can come about then maybe the kingdom of God will be found. But Jesus doesn't say that. Nowhere does he say that. Nowhere is that implied. But he does say, and something which is for us as uh, men and women of practice, he does say, be ever watchful, the kingdom of God is at hand. And one is already presented there with something of a, of a mystery, something which one can't sense. What does, what, what does this mean? I look at this world, everything which I see is far from being the kingdom of God. It seems to be a, a playground of misery. Conflict and terror and, and injustice. And I see, well, I, I see that I can't face that. And so, as I was speaking the other night, one wants to create a kingdom of God, something divorced from all of this. Be ever watchful, the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus first began speaking, he went to see his friend, John, John the Baptist, who was wore this camel coat and a belt and stood in the river and took hold of people and said that they had to change and duck them in the water. (laughs) And it's kind of a symbol of leaving behind the past, leaving behind the old. And certainly for some, the experience of actually going into that immersion and bringing about change and Jesus went there at the very beginning, as it's recorded, and went to see John. And, and John had been telling people, someone was going to come who was going to show the kingdom of God, reveal the kingdom of God. And therefore would not be baptizing with the water, but be baptizing with the spirit, the spirit of life. Communicating something else. And Jesus said, let me be baptized in this way. Let me participate, partake of this ritual. And John couldn't understand why, why, you don't have to do this, you don't have to go through that. He said, let me, because others have done, let me so do. Let me go through this. And so one has this sense of this man coming within himself from a place of such empathy and such intimacy of closeness, that he could speak the language of the people. 
And then he went up, he left, he left John, and he went up into the mountains. And while he was up there, and, with, and there's no indication anywhere that this man and his realization and his immense, what I would only describe as an immense seeing, there's no indication that there was a situation where he went from this to this. There's no indication of a, an enlightenment. There's no indication of a sudden transformation. He went up into the mountains. And while there, wander, wandering alone, temptations came to him. Thoughts, thoughts came to him. He said, well, if what he is seeing is true, if it is such that he is not spellbound, shall we say, by the world, not trapped in the world, not of the world, then surely he could turn the stones into bread. Surely, and the quote came from the, from the Bible, that one will be carried by angels and be, if one is airborne, then surely he could perform miracles. Surely he, he could jump from the top of the cliffs and be, and be safely carried down if he had conquered and mastered the world, if he had overcome the trials and tribulations of the world. And he realized it was the temptations of the mind, the movement, the movement of, of, of the mind. And as he said, what one has to do if one sees is to serve. Jesus went from the, the villages to the villages, sometimes speaking in the temple, sometimes speaking in the hills, sometimes speaking in the, in the villages, sometimes speaking by the lakes. And whatever one sees and reads, it is, it's always within the context of what he's, say, what he's saying. There's something which is touching us to a place which challenges us which challenges our assumptions and our, and our beliefs and the position that we take up to such a, such a, in such a way that one ha finds oneself having to leave so much behind. And even in the blunt directness which he was so characteristic of, even when one person said, I want to follow you, he said, but I have to go and bury my father. And his reply, and almost, almost a ruthlessness in his determination to awaken spirituality, he said, let the dead bury the dead. And some, and some of, some of us have, have found in, our, in the course of our life and in this hard, hard journey that things which we were close to and loved and valued, somewhere or other, had to be let go of. It's like having to be stripped down, stripped away from the supports and the foundations that one had. All that one cherished and acknowledged and believed in and supported, sometimes inwardly had to go. And so he says, here on this famous, famous lines about the cross. 
and one wonders and one and one one looks at, at the statements and he says if anyone wishes to be a follower, if anyone wishes to develop the practice, to, to follow the way, let him renounce himself and take up his cross every day. For anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake, for the sake of truth, that one will save it. And one sees too, and we have seen too in our life and in our practice, that one, in walking, one is carrying a cross. And in walking the path, at times there is a, there's feelings of tremendous weight and tremendous burden and hardship. And that to be, to carry the, the cross is something which goes part and parcel. And we might say, what is the cross? We might ask, well, what is the cross? What is our cross in life which we have to carry, which we have to, we have to bear with? And sometimes it's even as it were some, the feeling too of the whole relationship to the mind-body and the sense of just standing and having one's arms outstretched in life and just standing with the arms outstretched for a few minutes, just feeling sometimes even that the relationship to the mind-body can feel like a cross. And for those of you who are here who are having such pain and difficulty, for those of you who are here with, with life which is, for all of us, uncertain with regard to today and tomorrow, and to some degree we might say, just as we are living each day, we might say we are also dying a little bit each day. And in that too is part of the, the cross of life. He says, pick this up, take this fact, take this reality and walk with it. Once Jesus was on the lake, on the sea of Galilee, he, and he'd been up in the hills, and he came, came down, and he got into the lake. This is again how the story goes, and it's to see again a little bit more into what is meant by that. And. The sea was rough and stormy. And then Jesus walked on the water. And the disciples, amidst all these storms that were taking place, saw this walking on the water and couldn't believe what they saw. How is it possible for this to take place? And Peter attempted the same. And not understanding, and not understanding in faith and trust, began to sink. And one wonders, what, do, what can mean? What can that mean? What can be the implications of that? Is it just another demonstration, demonstration, another kind of questionable demonstration of some, of some city, some psychic, psychic powers? When if so where only arises again, so what, so what. But if there perhaps is another significance to that, maybe he's speaking about our life 
and speaking about our life in relationship to the elements. The elements which we are frequently in contact with, the earth element, the air element, and the water element, and the fire element, and the space element. And those elements, to use the old uh, di um, division of them, which have their impact and influence on us. And we see that we feel that somehow or other we are part of those elements, we are subjected to those elements, we are very vulnerable in our experience of them. But maybe that's just a very human way of seeing. Maybe that kind of seeing is a seeing which is a very conditioned, programmed way of looking. And maybe the message of Jesus and the message of seeing is that a message of, of being able to walk in life freely. So freely that one doesn't feel trapped, spellbound, conditioned by the life and by the elements. And therefore having a, a, a deeper import, inwardly, spiritually, than just some cities. Maybe there's a, an indication, a promise to us of that. And perhaps Peter, when he stepped out of, the, out of the boat, out of trying to keep things safe and secure, as we are likely to do, had a sense for that, but couldn't understand. When Jesus was travelling... And, and, and moving around he would speak, of the, speak and draw from the nature and he would say how with the creatures themselves and with the very nature of things they, we don't, one doesn't see them so to speak like human beings planning for tomorrow trying to fix tomorrow in, in some way or other and there's an emphasis, and again, to, to be free, he says, to be free like the birds. In that way of not holding on to tomorrow. And not to be concerned again and again with the accumulation of possessions, the accumulation of property, the accumulation of things. Because all of these things are subject to passing. And sometimes that's extraordinarily hard because of a, the very social structure that we, we live in. Im almost impales itself so predominantly on our senses that we've become as people, people of little faith. People of little real trust in life. And because of that, that some loss which has taken place there, we feel that if we're not striving to make it, not striving to get somewhere in this material world, in whatever way it is, then we're going to suffer, we're going to get lost, we're going to... We're going to nothing else will occur for us. And the impact of the social conditioning upon us, through parents, through education, through the emphasis on career, etc., etc., drives itself upon our hearts and minds so strongly, we're losing a certain faith, a certain trust. We're losing 
there's danger of us of the of the sustaining of our interest in the way begins to fade of what of really what it means what change means what 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 being um, born again means and so he gives this illustr- illustration of that the story of the sower So it says there was a large crowd of people sitting around and listening to Jesus. Jesus said, A sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell on the edge of a path and were trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some seeds fell on the rocks, and when it came up, it withered away, having no moisture. Some seed fell amongst the thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. And some seed fell into rich soil and grew and produced a crop a hundredfold. Saying this, he cried out, Listen, anyone who has ears to hear. Later, his, his friends asked him, what did, this, what did this mean? What did this story mean that you have just related? And Jesus said, The mysteries of the kingdom of God are being revealed revealed to you. For the rest, they are only parables. They may see the parable, but not perceive. This is Jesus' words now. They may see, but they don't perceive. They may listen, but they don't understand. Then Jesus begins to explain this, is what, this then is what the parable means. The seed is the word of God. Those on the edge of the path are those who have heard it and then they are carried away and the word is carried away from their hearts. Those on the rock are people who, when they first hear it, welcome what they have heard with joy. But the word has no root inside. They believe for a while, and in time of trial and difficulties, they give it up. They forget. And as for the part that fell into the thorns, this is people who have heard, but as they go on their way, they are choked up by the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life, and do not reach maturity. Remember, this is words of... Jesus precisely translated. As for the part in the rich soil, this is people, and he says, with a noble and generous heart who have heard the word and take it to themselves and yield the harvest of it. And sometimes in our own practice and in our own relationship to life and in the difficulties of the life, when we hear and we hear what's valuable and beautiful and profoundly significant for life, sometimes it just falls and, it, and the social reality consume us like the thorns which consume the seed. Sometimes it takes root and we see the benefit, we experience the harvest. Just as in these days that you and I have, have been and are being together, you hear much which is coming, much coming out of your own heart, the seeds coming from your own heart, and much which is coming from 
the situation that we have here together. And one doesn't know, you don't know, I don't know, what of that will bear fruit. And sometimes one day, one week, one year, ten years later, some of those things about the Dharma of life, the truth of life, begin to flower and become an, an extraordinary, an, an invaluable friend to one. Because they have taken root. The seeds of the kingdom of God have taken root in life. But Jesus goes further and being of the way that he is and being in the, in the language of his, of his communi communications he also speaks not only of the parables and, and giving the explanation to his, to his friends as the time went by but he also speaks of a, of a mystery of perceiving which goes beyond as it were just seeing life and just and just listening to an, another kind of order which he putting in his language is communicating something of the something of the kingdom of god and in in that he, he says things which are almost unbelievable to for the mind our common mind to actually get a feeling and actually get a get a, a sense for and one of the f indications of that, of the many, many that he gives, he speaks, of course, frequently. Frequently of the relationship to what he, in a very personalized language of Jesus. Remember, he refers to so much of his, what he says is in the terms of a, a metaphor. In the personalized language of Jesus, of the Father. Not the Father as something which is removed and distant, but something in life, something which, which goes deeper, which is like the found, a foundation for life uh, in, a, in a total way. And then there begin, begins to be some of the, the pointers, the, the indications of what he's referring to. But one can't use everyday language. One can't, can't even speak in parables or analogies in such a way. And yet it becomes a language which almost becomes a necessity. One example of, of that and, and the various further illustrations is at the Last Supper. And there, there at the Last Supper, because of his outspokenness, his, his criticism, his willing, willingness to be honest and direct, his, his, his assurance of what he says and, and, communi and communicated, constantly ruffling particular people, feeling threatening to the authorities and particularly to the Roman authorities. And all of that, as it were, leading in a certain direction, meaning that the speaking continued, his affirmations of what he saw continued unbroken, in spite of consequences, an unyielding determination to keep to the truth. And so in the Last, in the last Supper, 
when there's friends there in the in the upper room and the edge of Jerusalem and sitting there and being together he takes hold of the bread and he says this is my body takes hold of the wine this is my blood and wonders what what is it what what where is that coming from what is this man communicating here and in a, in a further further um, passage from um, from John, he he goes into the same the same again, where he speaks. He says, "Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world." And one and one, what what is What does this mean? And the Jews, you want to change it over. Then the Jews started arguing with one another. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They said. And then, Je- and then Jesus replied. I tell you most solemnly. If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. Anyone who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood, sorry, anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life, and I shall raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in him. And one sees, here's a statement which on the face of it is paradoxical, if not impossi- impossible. But in our, in our exp- exploration, something Jesus is say- saying there, which seems to be communicating something of a forgetfulness, an absolute, utter forgetfulness of oneself. A forgetfulness of oneself to such a degree that there isn't a distinguishing taking place between this is my body and that bread is not. That he has lost, in a way, his life. He has lost his self. He's given up his self. If you are to know who I am, speaking as this in a trans, immutably transcendent way, if you are truly to know, one must partake of the bread and wine of life. And to look anywhere else, to believe anywhere else, to think anywhere else, is not to understand this Jesus, message of Jesus. And then he goes further with his insights and his extraordinary love and compassion and, 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 and the giving up at all levels of his, all levels of his being. And he goes further and he, and, he, and he breaks mystery after mystery. And then he says in John chapter 14 verse, uh, verse 6, one of the most famous, well-known and possibly one might say one of the most 
misunderstood statements no, and, and which doesn't communicate the beauty of, and transcendence of understanding. Thomas said, Jesus, Jesus has said, you do not know who I am. You do not know where I am going. And Thomas said, Jesus, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? If we do not know where you are, how can, how can we know the way to be there? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father too. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And one look, looks at this, this statement and, and then something within this statement, something about the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not saying I am the way to the truth. Not saying I, I am the way to eternal life. Not saying I am the way, way to God. And in that perception, something about the way and here's the mystery again, something about the way, something about what one is practicing, what one is being here, here on earth, and the truth are not separate. Something about the journey and its fulfillment, something about the kingdom of God and life are not separate. how hard it is to see. And when we leave behind, when we let go, when we die to the image of Jesus, and we remember that Jesus is speaking as the Son of Man, the Son of men and women, as men and women, then one has to bring the language the Word is with God, and God dwelt in the flesh. One has to bring the language right to oneself. Not Jesus out there, but us. In our practice, and in the, and in, and in the way that we are following, and in the witnessing, and the being ever watchful, and in that being ever watchful, and in that being ever watchful which the heart is open, then this Jesus of another time, this Jesus of another era, is not of another time, not of another era, but here, right here, right with us. in our being ever watchful with an open heart. And so that there is that fading, fading away of the past, not in order to, as he points out, to get rid of tradition, to get rid of the, the religious past, but in a very true and real way, to bring all of that, as he says, to its fulfilment. And finding its fulfilment through us and through direct seeing, direct perceiving.
So in witnessing, in watching, in observing, in affection and in love, we may say, therein is Jesus. And no one can find God without that. No one. Not an abstract God, not a conceptualized God. And he tells a beautiful analogy, just, just a beautiful analogy. He said, you, if you go to a wedding, and near at the, there at the wedding are your two friends, and your two friends, the bride and the bridegroom, and you are the witness to the wedding. You are the witness to the twosome, to seeing that, that twosome, that duality, that pair. And you look, and in your witnessing of that twosome there, and you, and you look in that friendship, how much is your joy? How much is your joy to see that marriage? As it were, a direct pointer to us in our relationship to life to truly, truly be a witness to life. To be a witness to the duality of life. To be a witness to this and that in life. To be a witness to the bread and the wine of life. And if we are willing to be a witness and to walk with the cross of being a witness at times, in now pure witnessing, we'll be able to say, I, remember what Jesus says is I, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. For this is my body, and this is my blood, and I and the Father are one. And so the gap between, we have separated the earth from the kingdom of God. The separation from something other, the gap begins not to fall away, not to dis disappear, but to see so clearly and beautifully that there was never a gap in the first place. And with that open heart of Jesus, and in the very last period of his life, he is able to say, and as we often need to be able to say to each other, forgive, forgiveness. For they know not what they do. And we may say of that, for they know not what they do, that in our looking, in our life, it's sometimes easy, isn't it, to forgive those who, who, who express some remorse, who express some regret. But forgiveness for those who do and continue to do and have no interest to do anything else but be the way they are, no matter how much it hurts. Therein is real forgiveness. Therein is, a, is an openness of heart. 
because there is that awareness there that it has in its root causes not knowing what one does just not knowing and so when Jesus finally when Jesus was asked how can how can we know how can we know someone who has found the kingdom of God and all the deeper mystery of what it means and as he said you shall know them by their fruits you shall know them by their actions you shall know them by their words you shall know that by their manifestation and contribution to life by their serving of life that's how you know So let these seeds that we are here, which are being nourished and, and, and watered, let them develop. Let, don't let them be strangled in life. Let that flowering come. Let that maturing come. Let that, let that awakening be there. And in that awakening, as Jesus says, for one who knows that there is no death, May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the heart. May all beings see the kingdom of God.